This is a special Uncommon Sense podcast for 3RRR-FM with Amy Mullins. The interview you're about to hear is with Barrister Richard Beasley, SC. Richard joined me to discuss why he is so angry about the death of the Murray-Darling Basin and what needs to be done about it. Richard's new book is called Dead in the Water, a very angry book about our greatest environmental catastrophe, the death of the Murray-Darling Basin. It's out through Alan and Unwin. And you are tuned in to Uncommon Sense on 3RRR-FM with me, Amy Mullins, and I'm absolutely delighted to welcome onto the program Richard Beasley, SC. He is the author of a brand new book that has recently been released. It's called Dead in the Water, a very angry book about our greatest environmental catastrophe, the death of the Murray-Darling Basin. Richard Beasley is a senior counsel at the New South Wales Bar. He also was senior counsel assisting at the Murray-Darling Royal Commission, which was established in 2018 by the South Australian Labor Wetherill Government. And that Royal Commission was was conducted by Commissioner Brett Walker, SC. I'm so pleased to have you on the show, Richard, and thank you for taking the time to chat with us. Thanks for having me on, Amy. Now, Richard, to do the research for this interview, not only did I read your book and some of the reviews, which there've been a number that are very glowing and um, people really getting behind this book and rallying behind it, but there were also a, a couple of critical voices that seem to get a little bit upset about the fact that this book is angry. And I guess you can't please everyone, can you, when you're writing a book? But I was really interested in the breadth of responses to this book. But also, of course, we're dealing with what should be quite uncontroversial content. Yeah, tell me who's been getting angry at me first, because well, they, ha- they haven't had the courage to come forward to me yet. <laughs> I did hear an interview where you were criticised for being angry at conservatives and particularly attacking the conservative side of politics. But when I read this book, I didn't quite get that view because a lot of what has happened during this period was actually during a Labor government as well. Well, the Basin Plan was an- enacted as a through federal parliament in 2012 when there was still a federal Labor government and that basin plan as enacted for reasons that I can explain was unlawful at the time. Uh, However, there has been a Liberal government in Canberra since August 2013 and the the negligence and maladministration of the implementation of the plan identified by Brett Walker has happened under that government and successive governments since Abbott was the Prime Minister. But um, you're right, uh, this should be a bipartisan matter because the Basin Plan should be based on science, not politics. And there's undoubtedly a consensus about what the best science tells us about what we need to do to save uh, our rivers and wetlands and um, our ecosystems in the Murray-Darling Basin. Mm. I found this really interesting reading in the ways that you talk about the law and obviously the law in this situation is pretty clear and you do um, almost write, I guess, a love letter to the Water Act of 2007. (laughs) As long as you don't say I wrote a love letter to John Howard who had it passed, but uh, (laughs) yeah, good on him for for getting uh, the Water Act through in 2007 just before... Uh, which was the last year of his government, of course, before Rudd got elected. But the the Water Act was passed by federal parliament during a 
crisis, that that crisis was the millennium drought, um, which regrettably and unfortunately is likely to be the normal state for much of the basin in years to come because of climate change. But the millennium drought lasted about 10 years. It caused a terrible amount of damage through what I'll call southeastern Australia, outside of the capital cities, I should say, which unfortunately or fortunately, depending on what you, you believe, most Australians live in catapult cities and most Australians, it's not that they don't care about our environment, but they don't get to see what degradation is happening because mm. so many of us live in Sydney and Melbourne and Brisbane and Adelaide, et cetera, that we got, don't get to see what white Australians, the apocalypse that's occurred to our environment because of over-extraction of uh, feeble water supplies and land clearing, what sort of devastation that's caused and... As a result of all that, but particularly over-extraction of water from the Murray-Darling system, Howard passed an act that said, basically legislated as facts that we have over-allocated water to grow food and fibre in the Murray-Darling Basin, an area about twice the size of France, through southern Queensland, New South Wales, Victoria, South Australia and the ACT. And we've got to stop doing that. We won't go back to pre-1788. We'll still allocate water to people to grow things, grow food, grow fibre. But we're going to stop at the point where we're killing the environment. We're going to return some water that we've allocated to growing food and fibre and return it to the environment so that we don't kill the wetlands that we've got international treaty obligations to, and frankly, that we should save for future generations. And we're not going to do that based on what the National Party thinks or the Labor Party thinks or the Liberal Party thinks or some bureaucrat thinks. We're going to make the decision about how much water needs to go back to the environment from consumptive uses based on, quote, the best available scientific knowledge, close quote. Yes. Fantastic um... idea, quite remarkable that politicians would hand essentially power to scientists, even over a sciencey thing, like how much water does the environment need? But unfortunately, having passed that act, they've found it too difficult to live with. It's been seriously lobbied against. And the basin plan, which was meant to be based on the best available science, as Walker found in his Royal Commission, was in fact based on a political fix and the amount of water allocated to the environment is nowhere near enough to save it. Well, it was interesting that uh, you say you, you didn't write a love letter to John Howard, but um, Malcolm Turnbull was the minister responsible at the yeah. time. He then did eventually become prime minister as one of those yeah. liberal prime ministers. Um, you know, was he the only friendly ear to science or did he even change? I don't know that anyone in that parliament that passed the Water Act realised what they were doing. Um, <laughs> yeah. I think that they forgot, forgot how to read a piece of legislation and I think it became quite a shock to them when they realised, God, We've, uh, we've actually passed an environmental law that puts the environment first. How could this happen? And what's really happened since then is they've pretended they haven't done that. Um, but you don't need to be a, a, a great lawyer to be able to construe the Water Act properly. All you have to be able to do is read and comprehend English. It's an environment first act. And what it, what it clearly says is that we're going to stop degradating our environment. And we're going to create this thing called the Basin Plan for southeastern Australia that will return enough water out of irrigated agriculture and mining, give it back to the environment so that we stop the degradation of the environment and have a sustainable environment and meet our international treaty obligations, etc. 
Now that's proven too much to actually lawfully implement. And so we have this unlawful basin plan, which as I said, wasn't based on science. The scientists did the work for about four years after the Water Act was passed in 2007. A whole lot of hydrologists, ecologists, all sorts of flora and fauna experts, and ultimately computer modelers. And they came up with a, with a science-based figure that said, we're gonna to have to return in this system on a yearly average about 4,000 to 7,000 billion litres of water a year to the environment in order to save it and maintain it. To give you an idea of scale, that's about eight to 14 Sydney harbours worth of water. There's 500 billion litres of water in Sydney Harbour. Within a few months after there was a massive outcry and a big, big protest by certain groups uh, that were encouraged on by irrigation lobbyists, the 4,000, 7,000 billion litre figure miraculously came down to 2,750 billion litres or about half of what's needed to save the environment without any explanation by the Murray-Darling Basin Authority, which is the Commonwealth agency that had to draft and implement the basin plan. They've never disclosed their science. They've never disclosed their science to Australia's brilliant scientists because they know if they do, they'll, they'll be shown up to have based this on a political fix rather than on science. To take this conversation a little bit back in the bigger picture, because um, you did mention there that so many Australians do live in capital cities and also the suburbs around these capital cities. And so they perhaps don't see all that much of the Murray-Darling Basin. There's an old joke, Patrick Cook joke, about a Sydney person whose basil plant starts flowering, which they take to mean the drought is over. <laughs> um, that's... Oh. A, a, a funny example about how little most Australians that live in our capital cities, where, us, as I said, most of us live, have no idea about the damage that has been caused over the last, particularly since the Second World War, to outback Australia. Yeah, well, my um, basil grows like a weed, so I, I don't think I would use that as an indicator. But it makes total sense. I, I get where you're coming from. I was thinking about the headlines that we did see around big fish kills around the Murray Cod. And that was something that was quite public because we saw videos of farmers holding up dead fish, standing yep. in algae, essentially, blue-green algae. So I wondered, you know, we may have seen, I guess, these extreme incidences of environmental catastrophe where we're having mass fish kills. But I wonder, could you just share with us for us to get a picture of the significance of the Murray-Darling Basin in its ecological significance? I prefer to call it Southeastern Australia because I think the average person gets a better perspective about what I'm talking about. But it's the area of Australia from southern Queensland through most of New South Wales, much of Victoria and down into South Australia to where the mouth of the Murray is in, in the uh, Gore, which is about 80k south of Adelaide. It's where 60% of Australia's farms are. Um, it's where we grow most of our food and fibre. It's got a food and fibre industry worth about $25 billion. It's also where probably our two best known rivers are, which is why it's called the Murray-Darling Basin, the, the Murray River and the Darling River. To give some context to them though, we keep talking about Australians use the term the mighty Murray. It's not, it's a very long river, but it hasn't got much water in it and it never has. There's more water runs out the mouth of the Amazon in a day than runs out the mouth of the Murray in a year. The Darling River is essentially being killed. There's almost 
and has been virtually no flow down that river for many years, particularly in the southern part of the Darling below the Menindee Lakes. These are hydrologically feeble rivers. By that I mean they don't have much water in them, and yet we have allowed irrigation to proceed in Australia and grow in Australia, irrigated agriculture, as though the Murray is the Amazon, and it's not. We are a country prone to drought, and we are a country facing a pretty bleak future, frankly, if emissions don't drop in terms of climate change. The Murray-Darling Basin also has 16 Ramsar-listed wetlands. They are the treasures of the Murray-Darling Basin. These are wetlands that are protected by an international treaty called the Ramsar Treaty that Australia is a, a signatory to. And so we have obligations to maintain the ecological character of those wetlands at the time we signed up to the treaty, which, frankly, we're not doing. So it's a vastly important system for both growing food and fibre for the economies of rural and regional Australia, but also for the environment. And what's happened, as was recognised by Howard in 2007 during the millennium drought, we have just simply got things terribly wrong, the balance terribly wrong in southeastern Australia, where we've allocated way too much water to be pumped out of these rivers to grow food and fibre, and that's killing our environment. It's going to continue to kill it. Whether or not there's a basin plan or not, we're going to really have to come up with some really bloody good ideas to help regional and rural Australia come to grips with a future that is certain to have less water in it because of climate change. So that's essentially the picture of the Murray-Darling Basin or southeastern Australia. Thank you for that. I also want to just touch on what you raise in the introduction, which is the fact that there has been an Aboriginal basin plan uh, yeah. and that the basin is home to about 15% of Australia's Aboriginal people and over 40 Aboriginal nations. What yeah. was and is the Aboriginal basin plan? The Aboriginal basin plan is essentially the basin plan that was meant to be drafted from Howard's Water Act. And it's really just this, in, in simple terms, you could describe both the same way. But the Aboriginal Basin Plan was this, take what you need, but don't be greedy. Don't take more than you need, respect the environment. Now that was the way that Aboriginal nations used the waters of the Murray-Darling Basin for tens of thousands of years. And that's essentially what the instruction is from the Water Act that the Basin Plan is meant to be based on. We will still take water from this system to grow things. We will still allocate water to irrigators and farmers to enable them to grow crops, to grow whatever they want, whether it's cotton or rice or citrus or grapes, whatever, water their stock but we will just stop at the point where we kill the environment. That doesn't seem terribly unreasonable to me. In fact, it sounds really, really incredibly reasonable and a good idea. It's hard to implement because what it does mean is taking water off people or taking water off communities, not in a compulsory way, voluntary sales, but it does mean a reduction in water use by irrigators, whether they're corporate irrigators or individual irrigators. And that's a challenging thing to do and I understand why that frightens people in rural towns and regional centres and why they think that that might be destructive of their communities, their economies, etc. It may not be. But as I said, whether we have a basin plan or not, our government, our governments, are going to have to start helping those people adjust to the certainty 
of having less water in any event because of the certainty of a hotter and drier future. Exactly how hot and how much dry it will be, I can't tell you, and probably even the scientists can't tell you, but the certainty is it's going to be hotter and drier. And to give you some perspective about how much drier, we're already one degree hotter in the Murray-Darling Basin or 1.2 degrees hotter in, in Australia in the Murray-Darling Basin than we were 100 or so years ago. We're looking at an, at least another one degree C temperature rise within the next 10 to 30 years and possibly up to two degrees. God help us if it gets any worse than that. But for every one degree C, it gets hotter in the Murray-Darling Basin. We lose 15% of water runoff into our river systems. So if you make it two degrees, that's 30% less water anyway. That's going to be catastrophic and that's going to be really hard for people that live in regional and rural Australia. And, you know, it's really time our politicians stopped bickering over uh, in an ideological way about climate change scientists and actually got around to having some good ideas about how we're going to structurally adjust rural and regional Australia to the certainty of having a future of less water and how they're going to adapt to that. Yeah, well, it does make me think about two points that you make. The first is that Australia has been ramping up cotton production. As an example, of course, there are a number of types of agriculture that require water and irrigation. But yep. for example, you say in 1934, Australia produced 17,000 bales of cotton. By 1985, that had become 1.1 million. And by 2012, we passed 5 million bales. Uh, with 600,000 hectares of land dedicated to growing that crop and we became the world's third biggest exporter of cotton. Yes. You then go on to say, Australia is approaching 100 years of drought in the last 140. When I think of those two points, it makes you think that Australia perhaps hasn't been and we haven't been economic and environmental realists in our strategy around uh, what industries we're ramping up and increasing our production in? You're probably right. One, one thing I, I wouldn't do, if, if, if a corporation or an individual person has been given a, a water allocation, I wouldn't presume to tell them what crop they should grow. If they want to grow cotton, they can grow cotton. The real problem is not so much growing cotton, it's how much water we have allocated to grow cotton. You talked about the, the fish kills a couple of questions ago, and that was one time where the crisis of the Murray-Darling Basin did get on the front pages of newspapers and get covered in television mediums because people could actually show these pictures of all these millions of dead fish, and it's a very graphic, almost Old Testament-type plague picture, and it got some attention. Those fish kills are going to occur again, and the scientists have told us that those fish kills are caused by a number of reasons. Most fundamentally, there's not enough oxygen in the water, hence the fish suffocate. But why is there not enough oxygen in the water? Why is there not enough flow in the Darling River, for example, where all these fish died? That's simply because of two things. One, it didn't rain enough. That's a, a global problem. But two, over-extraction of water north of the system in southern Queensland and northern New South Wales, primarily to grow cotton. We've, we've allowed them, the cotton growers, they can grow cotton, that's fine, but we've given them too much water and that causes the terrible environmental damage that's occurred to the Menindee Lakes in the southern part of the Darling. So it's not, not that I would tell anyone 
you know, don't grow rice, don't grow cotton, even though they're, they're water-intensive crops. I wouldn't tell anyone not to grow almonds, even though that's an incredibly water-intensive permanent crop. But it's more about how much water irrigated agriculture gets as against our environment, particularly in times when there's stress in the system. This year it rained, which is great. Um, that's the weather. The long-term climactic trend is hotter and drier, and we just can't keep allocations uh, to the extent that they are. Mm. Not unless we want to be an environmental pariah. We're already <laughs> a climate change pariah. If we want to be an environmental pariah and allow the Coorong to die, allow our other wetlands to die, allow the um, our Ramsar-listed wetlands to die, fine. That's a decision we can make as a country if we want to be that kind of environmental pariah and allow parts of the environment to permanently die and deprive future generations from enjoying them and deprive the Aboriginal custodians of those traditional custodians of those parts of the environment to lose them permanently. Well, that's a moral decision Australia can make. But if we don't want to make that decision, then we have to take some more water out of uh, irrigated agriculture and actually abide by the Water Act and do things lawfully. Well, that's the, the kind of tension I was, I guess, observing in what you've said is the sense that whoever allocates water and decides how much water is able to be allocated and sold to, you know, whoever can afford to buy it and um, needs it based on what they've got, that is, it seems like, the strategic tension point. It then causes downstream effects where farmers who have then become reliant upon needing these licenses because they've already been receiving them for so many years and then may not get access to them if we change the rules and don't have as much to give. It seems like that's one of the problems and that's perhaps why farmers got so angry in Griffith. Yeah. Well, they burnt, they burnt the guide to the basin plan, which contained the figures that I said of the science-based figures of between 4,000 to 7,000 billion litres of water on average needing to be returned to the environment to save it. Look, I'd be the last person to suggest that this is easy. The science isn't easy, nor is the politics. I do think, though, that we need to make a decision about whether we decide there are fundamental areas of the environment that we, because we've got international treaty obligations and because we want to save them, for future generations, we've just got to make sure that they survive and we have to make sure that they get enough water and get the flows they need when they need them every certain number of years. That's in the end, to do that, that is purely a science question. It mm -hmm. is not a, a question for a politician to decide. And if we do that, and that's what the Water Act says we must do, then we don't have a lawful basin plan because it doesn't contain what is described in the Water Act as an environmentally sustainable level of take, that is take of water from the river systems. It's not environmentally sustainable. If we want to make the decision that we're not going to be environmentally sustainable, well, then our politicians should be honest about that and say, look, we're not going to put the environment first. We're going to keep giving more water to irrigators and to people that grow food and fibre in the basin. And we're going to sacrifice large parts of our environment. But at least be honest about that. Don't pretend you're putting the environment first when you're not. This was Walker's gripe in his Royal Commission about saying the basin plan's unlawful because it is just politics. It's not science. If Australia as a whole makes a, a decision that we're not going to protect large parts of our environment, 
and we're going to give as much water as we can to grow food and fibre in the Murray-Darling Basin to make as much money as we can or as much money as the growers can, fine. I don't agree with that, but that would be at least being honest and admitting that's what you're doing and that at the most you're going to do is tinker around the edges with the environment. Otherwise, you've got to abide by the law as it stands at the moment, which is to put the environment first. What makes me most angry about this is the total dishonesty with it, the dishonesty of our politicians and bureaucrats who want to keep up the pretense that the Basin Plan is environment first when it's not. It's actually economic outcomes first and tinkering around and doing a little bit for the environment, but not what's necessary to save it. If that's what we want to do as a country, at least admit it and be honest about it. However, if we want to put the environment first, then you've got to change the basin plan because it sure isn't legal as it, as it stands. It doesn't contain a, enough return to the environment to save it. It doesn't incorporate any projections for climate change, which is itself unlawful. So we've got to make a decision. And, and what most upsets me is just the dishonesty and the pretense. Yeah. One of the quotes that I read from this book that certainly resonated with me was the large group of Australian and international experts who you say peer-reviewed the Murray-Darling Basin Authority's guide and it was a group of you know highly regarded yeah. environmental water experts across the world and in this report you quote them as saying quote the driving value of the water act is that a triple bottom line approach environment economic social is replaced by one in which environment becomes the overriding objective with the social and economic spheres required to quote do the best they can unquote with whatever is left once environmental needs are addressed in Interpreted yeah. literally, the Water Act implies an outcome which is broadly recognised as one that is unlikely to be socially or economically and therefore politically viable. I mean, yeah, <laughs> it is pretty yeah, direct. It is. That's, that's a group of scientists peer reviewing the basin plan work in 2010. As you say, a group of eminent, a lot of them internationally based scientists who were, I think, frankly, amazed that the Water Act had been passed and that the, we did have this environment first law. And what in the end, they, having spoken to people in the Murray-Darling Basin, what in the end they said in their report is that they're concerned that scientists are being asked to tweak the science so as to in fact evade the strictures of the Water Act. So they were calling this out even before Walker's Royal Commission. They recognise that this is an environment first act and that's gonna be really hard for the politicians. You mentioned this triple bottom line. This is a mantra from the Murray-Darling Basin Authority and, and the government since they've legislated the unlawful basin plan that it's really not environment first. It's this magical thing where you simultaneously optimise environmental, economic and social outcomes. It's, a, it's, a, it's another load of dishonest pap. You cannot at the same time simultaneously optimise an environmental and economic outcome. If you give more water for the environment, for our native fish and our native trees and, our, and the wetlands and the forest, et cetera, you are taking water off irrigated agriculture. So you are improving environmental outcomes, but no doubt you are diminishing the economic output from pumping water out of the system. It's a joke to suggest that there's this means of simultaneously optimising these three opposed outcomes. 
economic outcomes, environmental outcomes, and whatever the hell social outcomes is meant to mean. It's an environment first law that puts the environment ahead so that it gets enough not to be destroyed. And that at that point, once you've reached the amount of water the environment needs to be sustained, then you do the best you can with what's left in terms of optimising economic and social outcomes from the water that's left available to grow food and fibre and for other uses. So if we look at and think about the Murray-Darling Basin Plan that has been put into effect and that is meant to be enacted or put into practice, what did we end up with? Have we ended up with the triple bottom line so-called approach um, that clearly is not achievable? And uh, what was in the final plan that was so contrary to the Water Act? Well, the final plan says that we'll return on average 2,750 billion litres of water a year. Ultimately, what's going to be returned because of some other unlawful measures that I've mentioned in my book that Walker described as pseudoscience rather than science. In the end, the amount of water that's at most going to be returned to the environment is about 2,100 billion litres a year on average. There is no scientific evidence including from the CSIRO, our leading scientific organisation that says that will get anywhere near, not within a bull's roar of doing much to save our environment. We're spending $13 billion on this plan that will do very little for the environment. And so it's essentially a waste of money, to be, to be honest, and a waste of taxpayers' money. Um, so that's what we've been left with, is a basin plan which will not produce the flows that are required every certain number of years to save the environment. It, 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 it gets very technical, but the easiest way of describing, I think, for people in terms of water being returned to the system is that, let's just use the Murray as an example. The Murray River itself is a, a Ramsar-listed protected thing, the, the, the river itself. But obviously, Rivers have floodplains and wetlands. They're called floodplains and wetlands for a reason. They need water over them every so often in the form of a flood. And the basin plan was designed, we're talking about yearly, I've been mentioning 2,100 gigalitres of water on a yearly average. In fact, what is actually meant to occur is they're meant to be stronger flows every number of years so that the water goes over the banks of the river at certain spots and gets out into the floodplains and the wetlands, and that has fantastic ecological outcomes. And depending on what parts of the environment we're talking about, it, they might need a certain level of flood every four years and a bigger flood once every seven years and a, a smaller flood once every two years. It, 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 it all depends on the science there. But we are ending up with a, a basin plan that... No, there's absolutely no scientific evidence at all that will do much to assist the environment. And that seems to me to be a fantastic waste, amongst other things that's wrong with that, including it being against the law, a fantastic waste of billions of dollars in, in public funds. Well, I found this part of your book particularly interesting, given that you were senior counsel assisting at the Murray-Darling Royal Commission, which, as you say, was conducted by Commissioner Brett Walker, SC. And you do quote throughout a number of chapters interactions that you have with witnesses where you're questioning the witnesses for this Royal Commission, as is Commissioner Walker. And 
There are some interesting points that come out around the science and how the Murray-Darling Basin Authority was coming or arriving at with their modelling certain figures and how we've ended up with one of those figures, the 2750 figure in particular. Do you mind sharing with us that story and what you learned in the Royal Commission through that work you were doing with Commissioner Walker? Sure. I think the the three... The three most shocking things I learned with these, and, and Australians, we've talked about how, how many of us live in the city and how many of us don't know about this. We should all be, be outraged by the things I meant to say, not, not only because of what the maladministration and worse that occurred, but because water is such a precious thing in our country. I don't think we realise it's, it's far more precious to us than, than coal and iron ore. But, but the, the first thing was we, we had... Sworn evidence given by one former employee of the Murray-Darling Basin Authority and other people told us this that weren't prepared to get in the witness box because they're still employed within the Commonwealth Public Service and we didn't want to cost them their jobs. But essentially one witness said with the, we talked about the figures 4,000 to 7,000 billion litres a year when that figure was being whittled down to the 2,750 gigalitre figure, he gave evidence that no one within the MDBA, including its scientists, thought that that was actually a lawful science-based figure. And it became a running joke that it was, in effect, may as well have been based on a postcode. That is a New South Wales postcode, 2750 being the postcode of Penrith, as distinct from what it needed to be uh, based on a at least a Queensland postcode, if not a South Australian postcode or higher again. In other words, this 2000 figure was called a, a postcode fixed is what Walker described it as, rather than being anything to do with science. So that, that's the first very disturbing thing. The second disturbing thing is, as I said, we had a report from the CSIRO. They were asked to do a report by the Murray-Darling Basin Authority before the Basin Plan was legislated as to what would be the benefits of a 2,750 gigalitre plan, that is a return of water to the environment on average of, it was actually 2,800 gigalitres a year. They produced a report that said for many parts of the environment, a 2,800 gigalitre plan won't do much good. The Murray-Darling Basin Authority was very upset with that report and management from the MDBA pressured management, not scientists, but management within the CSIRO to change the wording in that report to a degree that the author of the key section of this report who gave sworn evidence, who's now left the CSIRO said, amounted to scientific censorship. He'd kept the draft report, he'd kept his diary notes. The fact that this management of CSIRO caved in and changed this report in significant ways to make it look as though a 2,800 gigalitre plan would be better for the environment than the scientists of the CSIRO actually thought it would, caused such unrest within the CSIRO that they'd call in a facilitator to deal with staff unrest. One of the reasons this scientist who, who's now at ANU uh, who gave sworn evidence, one of the reasons he was given as to why the CSIRO was caving in to the Basin Authority was that they were concerned that the Basin Authority wouldn't pay the CSIRO for the report unless they changed it in the manner that was required. So again, I think all Australians should be really outraged that our leading scientific organisation, the CSIRO, gets heavy by another federal agency to change a science report to the extent that the main author of the key chapter calls it scientific censorship. So I found that utterly disgusting and beyond my comprehension how it could even happen. 
And I think the third really outrageous thing is that when the Basin Plan was being put together, the CSIRO gave advice to the Murray-Darling Basin Authority saying, whatever you do, you've got to incorporate climate change projections into this plan. If you don't, it'll essentially be a joke. This is a plan for the future. It's going to get hotter and drier. You've got to put our climate change projections into your modelling. And the MDBA, knowing that would mean more water has to go to the environment, refused to do that. CSIRO said, if you don't do it, it's, quote, scientifically indefensible, close quote, which is what Walker also found. But the MDBA just ignored that. Again, I think it's incredible when you're talking about the use of taxpayers' funds and you have our leading scientific organisation, federal scientific organisation, the CSIRO, giving science advice to another federal authority saying, you have to do this or it'll be scientifically indefensible. And that other federal agency refusing to do that, I can't believe that that could be allowed to happen, but it has. So the Basin Plan has no climate change projections built into it at all, which is frankly a disgrace and was totally against the advice of the CSIRO, who, as I said, described this approach as scientifically indefensible. Walker described it as the same thing in his Royal Commission. He also described it as gross negligence and incomprehensible decision-making, which is what it is. Well, it does take place, um, that situation with the CSIRO, amongst a backdrop of ongoing and constant substantial funding cuts, such as in 2014, the Abbott government's $110 million funding cut, with about 1,400 staff lost there. Sure. For the climate change chapter in in Brett Walker's Royal Commission report, we called evidence from several of Australia's leading climate change experts experts, um, Professor Andy Pittman from the University of New South Wales and uh, Professor Mark Haldon from ANU. And they both essentially said that, look, it's not so much money for research into climate change anymore. The the world's doing that research. The the, the science of climate change is is pretty settled in, in terms of what the range of likely outcomes are depending on what we do in terms of emission reductions. But what as they described, what we shredded, that's their word, shredded, after Abbott was elected, was our our research into climate change adaptation. And and that gets back to the point I made before about whether or not we have a basin plan. Our governments have got to do something to assist regional and rural Australia um, adapt to a certain future of less water, uh, because that's coming, whether or not we have a basin plan. And yet, it's the people that are that are largely driving the ideological wars about climate change are the ones that, of course, shred the adaptation research. For some reason, and this is probably beyond the scope of this interview, people in regional and rural Australia who have most at stake over this keep voting for people that don't believe in climate change and don't believe in funding climate change adaptation research. Why that happens, I'm not sure. Uh, but anyway, uh, that is what it is. Yeah, it's uh, inexplicable in some ways. And one topic I wanted to conclude this conversation with was uh, about something that has really been, I guess, sticking out in my mind, and you're probably the right one to ask, thinking about the fact that the Murray-Darling Basin Authority did respond to the Royal Commission and 
Commissioner Brett Walker's findings, and they were suggesting that it was really just a difference of interpretation or legal opinion around how the Water Act could be and should be applied. I wonder if it is so clear and obvious that it's the, the environment first in this Water Act, are there modes or avenues of legal recourse to actually make invalid or prove that um, the Murray-Darling Basin Plan is unlawful and needs to be changed to actually fit the law that it's seeking to serve? There might be. I'll come to that. But first thing, that comment by the Murray-Darling Basin Authority that it was a, just a difference of opinion was an outrageous comment. Brett Walker did say in his Royal Commission report that he he disagreed with the way that the Basin Authority had interpreted the Water Act, disagreed as a matter of statutory construction. That was one part. That, that He's right, for example. When there's a difference of opinion, yes, there can be difference of opinion, but, but the real question is who's right? But that was a difference of legal opinion. Putting that aside, Walker, however, made findings that weren't based on statutory construction. They were just based on pure and simple facts. The fact that I mentioned to you before that the Basin Plan was clearly based on a political fix and not science. That's got nothing to do with statutory construction or a different opinion. That's a fact. Um, it's not a difference of opinion that climate change projections weren't put in the Basin Plan, which has to be best available science. And if you don't put that in, the Basin Plan's unlawful. None of these things were about difference of opinions. They were about making findings of fact, which is what Royal Commissioners do. They look into the facts and they make findings about what the truth of something is. So Walker made findings about what the truth of something is, not about the difference of an opinion. Coming back to your first point, that your other point though, about whether you could challenge the Basin Plan. The Basin Plan is federal legislation, which uh, it's not primary legislation, but that might make it a difficult issue as to whether it's justiciable about whether you can challenge it as an invalid decision. But um, it could be challenged on the basis that it's unconstitutional because its constitutional validity depends on using the foreign affairs power in our federal constitution. That is, the Basin Plan is, is said to be one that has to faithfully fulfil Australia's international environmental treaty obligations under the Ramsar Treaty for Wetlands under the Biodiversity Convention, under the Climate Change Ag Agreement, etc., under a number of migratory bird international agreements we have with other countries. So there might be an ability to challenge the Basin Plan as unconstitutional, but where would that get you? Even if you succeeded, that would end up with invalidating the Basin Plan. We'd still have the Water Act that requires a Basin Plan to be drafted, so I guess they'd have to start again. Even though I'm a lawyer, I'm not a great advocate necessarily for finding a court-based solution. I'd like people to just do the right thing. The right thing is to, to actually either make it lawful and put science first, however difficult that might be, but make it an environment-first basin plan, which will mean a lot more water will have to go back to the environment, or do the other honest thing and change the Water Act so that it's not an environment-first law, and then you can have a different sort of basin plan, which is one where it's a bigger form of compromise between environmental outcomes and economic outcomes. But either way, it should be honest. It is very hard and a big decision to try and challenge the, the validity of the basin plan and go to court. And as I said, as a citizen, forgetting myself as a lawyer at the moment, as a citizen, it's not what I think would be the best outcome, that is, it wouldn't be the best outcome to have a court challenge over this. 
it'd be the best outcome to be honest and do it properly and either do it according to science or change the Water Act and not do it according to science. To conclude where we started, you said that this should be a bipartisan issue, something that we can all agree on. Do you think or are there indications that a Labor government, should they be elected at the next election, would act in any kind of way that is different and is recognising the environment first aspects of the Water Act? Well, uh, one area where Labor now has differentiated itself from the government is that the the Labor Party has said that they would, for whatever water is left needed to be gained for the environment under the Basin Plan, they have said they would buy that water rather than trying to recover it through other means such as so-called efficiency measures. That's a really good idea because buying water entitlements, we're talking about obviously voluntary sales, not compulsory Mm. acquisitions, Buying water for the environment, A, is more a certain, more certain way of getting water into the system, but B, is at least three times probably more cheaper to taxpayers than schemes, efficiency schemes to recover water. Not that we shouldn't use water efficiently, but buying water is a much more certain and cheaper means to get water back in the system. So that's a good thing. I would hope, and this is, is only a hope, but I would hope that if Labor got in in federal government, they would actually take Walker's Royal Commission off the shelf it's been put on, covered in dust, open it up and take a serious look at his findings of fact and at his recommendations and implement them. Whether they'll do that or not, I have no idea. There'll be a lot of pressure on them not to do it, but buying water would be a good start to recover the rest of what's required under the Basin Plan instead of schemes that probably don't work and cost all Australians a lot of money, including, for example, taxpayers in Perth that don't have much skin in the game for the southeastern Australia. But I would hope that they would at least have it either a serious look at Walker's Royal Commission or set up a federal Royal Commission because one of the things that Walker was deprived of because he was taken to the High Court and not given enough time for that case to be resolved Walker issued summonses to federal employees, including past and present members of the MDBA. Uh, He was going to issue summonses to employees of the Department of Agriculture and Water. He was seeking documents from these organisations, etc. And the cooperation he got from the federal government for that was, uh, stuff you, we're taking you to the High Court, we don't think you've got power to do this. Obviously, if there was a federal-based Royal Commission, those sorts of people if they were summoned to be examined, as they should be, uh, that could occur. So that that would be another thing that that Labor could look at as well. Thank you so much, Richard. It's just been absolutely fascinating and obviously really compelling to read this and to get angry about it as well. (laughs) The book is called Dead in the Water, a very angry book about our greatest environmental catastrophe, the death of the Murray-Darling Basin. I really appreciate your time today. Thank you for having me, Amy.